I got a little arm thingy that's got it uh, quite nicely positioned right above my head. So I should have the old spit guard thingy there, and it's quite useful. I get rid of, I get rid of the spit guard because it gets in the way. Well, as I record this, the sun is streaming in the windows. Spring has arrived here in London, and I just hope that it's still here as you listen to this wherever you are or whatever you are doing. Matthew Grant here, partner at Instec London and broadcasting to the world. And welcome to all of you, by the way, listening in from Canada. You are our third most active audience by country this month. Now, this week, I am joined by a very good friend of Instec London, known to many of you for his daily, or maybe that should be hourly, presence on social media and co-host of the 11FS podcast, Nigel Walsh. Now, I interviewed Nigel for podcast 81 in May last year, still incidentally, one of our most popular. But this week, we've swapped seats. Nigel is going to be interviewing me about our forthcoming report, Location Intelligence 2021, the companies to watch, where, what, and how risky. Now, as you'll hear in a moment, this is an important and it's a massive topic, mostly focused on ensuring property and understanding where things are, what they're made of, the value, the hazards close by, and how to assess claims remotely. Now, as Nigel and I discuss for an insurer, understanding where things are and what might cause them to break or get destroyed is one of the fundamentals of underwriting. Get that wrong. And all the other clever tech is effectively useless. Now, you can download the report from our website, www.instec.london, or follow the link in the episode notes. Uh, it's 83 pages long and covers over 50 companies. No shortcuts when it comes to location intelligence. Free for everyone in April, but you need to buy it after that unless you are a member. Well, Nigel kicks things off. Hi, folks, and welcome to one of my favorite podcasts. And I get to turn the tables on I, one of my other favorite hosts for the first time. So I'm delighted to uh, be interviewing Matthew Grant for the upcoming Location Intelligence Report for Instec London. Matthew, how are you? I'm great, Nigel, and thank you very much for doing this. We've had a very productive uh, 50 minutes already comparing recording styles and microphones. So I've already learned a whole lot more from you as I do each time I talk to you and delighted to have you turning the uh, turning the microphone on me for a change. Well, look, this is uh, I know you joke about it week in, week out, but I'm usually, especially over the last year, washing a car, cutting the grass or doing the hoovering whilst listening to your dulcet tones on a uh, on a Sunday morning. So I'm delighted to do this. I am super excited by this topic, though, and location intelligence in that in a world of data and in the world that we sit in for insurance, um, there seems to be nothing more important, especially given my recent move to a company that's trying to organize the world's information. It felt like the perfect opportunity to have this conversation. So with that, let's start. Dare I even ask, where do we even go with this? What is location intelligence defined as? What is it? What is it not? Yeah, it's a good place to start with the uh, definition. And just before we kind of just let you get away without just congratulating you on that new move, very exciting. And if we get as many comments, or if I get half as many comments for this report as you got for your your move, uh, which I can say is Google Cloud, then we'll be very pleased. So congratulations on that. I'm sure we'll talk a bit more about that as we go. So in, in terms of location intelligence, the reason we're doing this is a reminder that for all the great tech out there and the things you can do with it, and we're both seeing a lot of really interesting things, you fundamentally got to understand for most types of insurance, but particularly for property, what is it that you're actually insuring in the first place? So what is it? Where is it? 
what's it built of, what kind of risks are associated to that. So for the purposes of what we've done here, location intelligence is really just figuring out what on earth is it that's been put in front of you if you're an underwriter or you want to provide some more tech to help people analyze this. What is it you need to understand once you're actually in the position of defining the risk and therefore making risk selection and maybe even charging a premium? I was lucky enough to have a, a pre-read of the report uh, and it's super comprehensive, but very opening paragraphs made me chuckle in that it said, you know, a boat's just a floating building, isn't it? What what are we actually looking at here when we say location? Well, on the basis that, you know, property is the, one of the main areas, but we shouldn't forget all the great developments that have been going on in the marine area, you know, with companies like Consiris and IHS Market coming in. But actually, there is a, a true reason story behind the boat one. So Hurricane Katrina, uh, which I think everyone is familiar with, at least you know, aware of what happened, large uh, inundation of flood coming in on the back of a hurricane to New Orleans. One of the big surprises for that for underwriters, and particularly in the London market, was where they thought they'd been insuring casinos and casinos generally when you think of those you think of buildings uh it turned out that because of the licensing laws in louisiana that you could only have a casino if it was on a boat and so what had been happening casino operators had been basically creating these barges dressed them up most cases to look like buildings one of them looked like a pirate ship was a bit of a hint um but the underwriters all saw casino and when they were pricing and modeling them they modeled them as though they were a static building and sure enough if you get a uh, yeah, massive, great big windstorm and 20 meters of sea storm surge coming in, they actually act like boats. So, yeah, not, not entirely um, fanciful, this idea that boats are buildings that float. That's really interesting. You've actually just given me a, 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 an immediate point to say, well, how good or bad is the information today? Surely um, insurers know at least where, what things are they're insuring first and foremost by looking at them. And you know if it sits on a a river or a, a lake or wherever else on the coast, you could see that. So how good or bad is the information? Yeah, you think so, wouldn't you? I mean, the answer is it's still not very good. And there's about 100 companies out there and there are more coming in all the time. You know, about 67% of the companies we're looking at in this report have been started up in the last 10 years, defining really simple things like what is the right latitude, longitude for a building? Where is it? Actually, I mean, that as a very starting point, and then you've got all the slightly more difficult stuff to know about, like what's it built of and what are the nearest hazards. So the answer to your question is, in some parts of the world, in some properties, information is really good. But yeah, there's a big sort of buyer beware label that needs to go over some of this data because it's not always as good as people think it might be. Building on that, and no pun intended, what, what really is important when we're pricing and selecting risks? Because I'm, I'm starting to worry, or as you start to say all these things, are we moving away from location, which I would normally have put down as just insight on the physical location, which you've clearly said is way more than that. But at what point do we get to a stage where we have so much data? How do we work out the wood through the trees and work out what's important and what's not important? Yeah, it's a good question. I think there's two questions within that. So one is just getting a bit more crisp about the definition of location intelligence we've used here. Maybe we've cheated a little bit in the sense of how we're thinking about it is if you are insuring a property, at that property is at a location, unless it's a ship, uh, but assume it has a location. Uh, therefore, you need to know where is it, latitude, longitude, the best, what it's made of, uh, what's the hazards that are close by. If that 
building gets damaged or destroyed, what's going to cost you to rebuild it? And and then even in the event of a claim, can you get information remotely about that building without having to send out a loss adjuster, you know, because you're in a whole new world there. So I think location intelligence is really all the aspects of not just the location dependent of the building that's at that location, but in this case, including the building. And then to your point about the data, well, as we all know, there is there is lots of data out there. And the real question is, well, two questions. So one is, can you trust that data if you're making an underwriting? And we can talk a little bit about pre-fill and you know, people wanting to make underwriting decisions based on minimal information. And then the second question is, once you actually know everything you want to know about the building as an underwriter, can you actually do anything useful with that information? In a, in a, in a perfect world, perfect information is what everybody wants. The reality, as we all know, in a commercial environment with pressures on getting the best price to your customer, it doesn't quite always work out like that. You start getting into a topic you and I have talked about many times, which is ultimately if you get down to a risk pool of, of one, you ultimately come down to the nth level of detail and we almost defeat the whole purpose of insurance when we have pooled risk at the end of the day. So it, it's almost a... Uh, what, how much granular information do you actually end up getting before it becomes dangerous is the wrong word, but becomes unuseful to the broader thing that we're trying to do by pooling and grouping these things together? The other thing you touched on, actually, was beyond the rate quote buying value chain. So you touched on claims and adjusting and, and, and that sort of good stuff. How does location intelligence support you here? Well, again, you've got to give me two questions there. So uh, I think on your granularity one, I mean, Again, there is a political issue here in certain parts of the world, and certainly in the U.S., where redlining of properties is, you know, in some cases, is actually illegal, meaning as an insurer, you, you can't exclude coverage just because you don't like the risk. You actually have to offer a price for it. Or in the U.S., they can decline it, but it has to go out into the non-admitted market. In the U.K., we saw that pre-flood re where the government had basically had an agreement with the insurance industry. They'd give flood insurance to everybody on the basis they would actually invest money in building flood defences. That's now changed with uh, with flood reefs. So I think, yes, you're right. If you go down to the individual level, then is that too much information? The second question I've now forgotten because I spent so long answering the first one. I asked you about claims, underwriting, loss adjusting. On the claims and loss adjusting, to your point about do we send someone out and where I originally went when we first spoke about this was, hey, claims, uh, Matthew's had an accident or there's been an incident. The first thing I do is look at a map. But it's more than that, right? We've all seen, and I think we're going to see a lot more of companies that are doing remote claims adjustment because there's a massive cost saving, particularly if you can triage. If for the flood risk, for example, if you've got clear evidence there's been a meter of flooding by your client's building, it's pretty clear you can at least pay out some of that claim straight away. Everyone's happy. They can even start to do some things to mitigate it we're going to see i think we're going to see more of that you know parametric insurance is another area of course that can be used for claims handling claims interestingly has not had as much attention from an investment point of view as you might think it has uh, andrew johnson in the willis insurtech report a couple of quarters ago yeah had about 18 percent of the investment in the whole insurtech space going into claims Todd Rissell of Meaty Valley had an interesting comment, which is if you think how people are spending money on acquiring data, you're $150 to understand the claims loss 
is probably equivalent to about a $1 you spend at underwriting. Or put another way around, you know, there's 150 times more value of the information you get when you're adjusting a claim because you're immediately, you've got a financial benefit, you know, and obviously you've got to look after the client of getting that right. And claims is right to the bottom line, you know, so if you make a saving on claims or you make an efficiency on claims or you actually, you save the thing getting worse because someone's roof get blown off in a hurricane, the longer you leave it, the more risk is it's going to get water damage or mold in there. Faster you can sort it out, everyone's better off. So I'm surprised it's not more of a focus on claims because, you know, there's, there's much more immediate term cost benefits there. It, it does feel like it's an evolution at an evolutionary stage, though, in that we've gone down the distribution, we've gone down the ease of use and engagement. I do feel that this probably could be one of the next areas. We've all talked about the move from reactive to proactive. Well, if we could prevent claims happening in the first place, as we see, for example, in the health sector where we're going, hey, Matthew and Nigel, go for a walk and do these things because it's better for you. and You're less likely to end up ill or whatever else. So maybe these two things coming together we'll see some more investments going in the how do we avoid claims going forward and making sure that the assets actually are going to stand still, whether it's a wooden building or a, a concrete or whatever it might be in years to come. It, it does lead me to the next question though, around, you know, residential versus commercial property. There's got to be some huge differences here, right? Well, literally huge differences in scale. Uh, yes, I mean, residential property tends to be a bit more homogenous. So you kind of, once you've figured out one semi-detached London property uh in a certain borough you know chances are you know a lot about most of them and therefore you're just changing things in the margins commercial or small business commercial tends to be a bit more homogenous high value commercial of course is, is very different and we're talking to a lot of people now in the insurance world about what they're looking for and that is still the big gap in terms of getting good information on commercial properties you know both in the us and the uk Saitora spent quite a lot of time helping insurance companies, you know, by doing some quite clever things, looking for data that was the leading indicators of commercial property risks. And, you know, they have taken that now and are using it to help companies, again, triage. So the underwriter can look at the commercial properties coming in and say, is it with an appetite? The vision is often ahead of the reality. People sometimes give up because they can't achieve the vision, whereas in practice, you're helping people with risk selection because you get something is better than something else is a good step towards the ultimate, this is exactly what I need to know about our property. So I think in answer to your question about commercial, getting better all the time, I think back to the risk management ones, there's some quite interesting people now looking at doing more information that you can use. And we can talk about IoT and sensors that you can use to monitor building performance and risk right up front for the risk management side. But I, I, what we're seeing is still feels a big gap in terms of you know how good that information is to be able to use for underwriting. Let me jump out of the information side for a minute and play on the words of the actual report in terms of intelligence. Is the buyer of insurance or risk management services for commercial fundamentally different to that of a residential individual? As a as a consumer, my favourite questions, as people will know, are what lock type have you got? Uh, how close you are to water? And how much does it cost to rebuild your house? Three things that I don't think I know very well. I, I might say there's a stream down the road, but... I can tell you if it's 10 metres or 100 metres or a kilometre. So is the intelligence of the buyer very different? And as part of what we're saying here, we're going to arm the buyer with more insights that they can actually action as opposed to just stuff out there, information, as opposed to anything, anything useful. That is where we're seeing the shift, isn't it? I mean, why would they be asking you how close the nearest water is when they know, well, it's back to this point, but why it's so important to know what the location is. So 
maybe it's a proxy to the fact I don't really know where you are, Nigel. So I don't have complete confidence in your location. So I'm going to rely on you to look out the window and tell me where your nearest stream is, which is a bit ridiculous as opposed to, you know, I've got the data, so I know exactly where you are and I've got maps of streams. So I don't need to tell me that. When it comes to door locks, that's probably more of a burglary one. But I think back to this whole pre-fill thing, you know, how much do you want your residential, you and I, when we buy our insurance to know and just get through the journey? Because if it gets too difficult when you're buying insurance as an individual, you just give up. You know, you say, I'll go on to the next one. And and they don't ask me so many awkward questions. It's almost back to the point we have lots of data, but not enough insight or information. And it's almost at what point do we get to too much data? I mean, we could ask, we could, we could answer that question for hours between the two of us, I'm sure. Let me jump on to another point you talked about, which was hurricanes. What's going on in hazard modeling more broadly? We've seen lots of stuff come up in, uh, hurricane floods and so many more right now. What's going on in that space? It's getting very active again. So, you know, I started off my career, actually, I was fortunate enough to go out to Northridge earthquake back in 94, a few days after the earthquake and really see what happens in an earthquake. And there was a real flurry then with Northridge, Hurricane Andrew. Uh, we had a couple of big storms in the UK. Everyone started to get much more focused on hazard and location. Spreadsheets came out, uh, probably haven't really changed much since then. But, you know, a lot of data happened then. And then it kind of went quiet for 20 years. And you know, so there's two things. Partly literally it went quiet. So you, you've got a series of damaging hurricanes, but fewer earthquakes and flood was less prevalent as an insured loss. What's happening now is two things. So one is people are actually starting to have more confidence in doing short-term hurricane forecasts. So the price of hurricane risk up until now has pretty much been flat year. You're really hard to get confidence about short-term changes. But people like Reask now and others are coming up with seasonal forecasts in June, which is the start of hurricane season. You can actually start to tell other more landfalling hurricanes. And that's the key is how many hurricanes make landfall. And then, of course, you've got much more computing power. And we're seeing companies like NASDAQ and then Oasis Loss Modeling just announced today, I think they've got two million pounds, I think it is, of funding to create more of these open source, open access. So you're seeing a lot of more niche boutique companies coming up who can offer specialist models in areas that the big modeling companies previously haven't really gone to because it's actually quite expensive to build a decent model. And if the economics don't fit, it doesn't make sense. But NASDAQ is doing a really interesting job in opening up access to more models. Uh, so I think you're seeing a combination of like last year was a weird year because hurricanes didn't contribute the largest losses. They came from wildfires and flooding uh, and tornadoes are also pretty nasty in there as well. So more more hazards, more frequent, more awareness, more technology. Yeah, lots of these things are coming together. And yeah, I mean, we've got probably we've got 23 companies looking at flood alone in the report. Yeah. Whereas five years ago, you'd have probably had two doing flood modeling. You, you, you just touched on, I was enjoying listening to, is it iSci and also Fathom over the last couple of podcasts? Yeah. With some really great insights and uh, data around how much and how complicated it is to do some of these things. Um, you can't talk to me about hurricane floods uh, or any of these things without mentioning climate change today. What's going on in the world of climate change? And this, again, this is probably a whole episode, so we won't go into too much detail. But what's going on in the world of climate change? You think the location intelligence can play a significant role in two things to keep it simple so we've got this short term well three sorry let's not get too <laughs> too complicated new or more significant hazards like wildfire which is a combination of just new conditions plus people building in more exposed areas secondly you've got these short-term changes that people want to model but thirdly 
you know, we're, we're hearing now a lot about ESG, environmental, societal governance. Uh, that is becoming a combination of requirement and also just best practices for companies wanting to report on what they're doing to sort of demonstrate their environmental credentials. You know, and that's accelerating. I mean, Lloyds is starting to say they're no longer going to be writing fossil fuel related businesses. And I think it's in, in 10 years time, a uh, lot more focus on renewables. And so I think one of the benefits that might be a surprise to people is starting to use all this data that are getting for location intelligence to actually to point at more ESG reporting. You know, really how are insurance companies promoting better environmental awareness and you know, mitigating the impacts or future impacts of climate change? The thing that people often forget is that regulation is often one of the biggest drivers of innovation. I mean, most of us wouldn't have insurance if we didn't have to buy it. You know, in California, I think 7% of the population buys earthquake insurance. But whereas yeah, at all levels, the regulators say, well, you've, you've actually now got to report on your environmental mitigation impact and show that's reducing year on year. The trickle down effect is really powerful because you, you have to do that by demonstrating ultimately what you're doing to reduce the risk to your policyholders. And you've got to measure it. So you need data to measure it. I think that's going to be a massive, uh, a, a massive thing. Maybe it would be the next uh, NFT novel that we were talking about, the ES, ESG token. I mean, we, 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 between us now, we must have at least 30 episodes of things like NFTs and whatever else. Your point about regulator, I think, is, is, is brilliant in, in that I generally think there's a ton of innovation to come out through regulation to work out how we do things better. That said, the other thing on the other side to that coin for me is along the lines of how do we start to normalize and make sense out of this? So is this a utility? Is there platforms out there that are doing this? Is it an individual company? I mean, one of the concerns that I have more broadly is there's lots of companies that can do this. How do we orchestrate or organize the world's information in that way? You look at any area, isn't it? And and there are leaders for, you know, sometimes there's good reasons. Sometimes they just market it heavily and get out there. But ultimately, we used to talk about it in the days of RMS of the, the risk currency, you know, the catastrophe modeling, the, the two main catastrophe modelers partly were successful because there was a, recognition of this risk currency. So if you're going to model hurricane risk and transfer reinsurance, the buyer and the seller trusted the currency. But you can think about that, you know, across all sorts of different types of risk and transactions, natural hazard or not natural hazard. If the, if the parties and the counterparties and the intermediaries and the brokers all agree on how you're assessing the risk, you know, they recognize there's uncertainty in there. Then I think that's where you get to your point about is that you know, there's a lot of data, but actually some of that data is trusted. It's always very healthy to get challenged by the data or my point earlier about re-ask. You get people that can help you stress test some of the, you know, the norms. I think that's really valuable as well. But until you get a trusted source of data that you can share, then I think it's very difficult to have a transaction based on analytics. Yeah. Now, interesting. The word trust goes hand in hand, obviously, with insurance. At what point? And I remember. Uh, a good friend of ours, Matt Pohl at Neos, always used to talk about we could do all this with one question. I think they actually did very early on with the zip code or postcode, but actually people weren't used to it. So they had to add in more questions to make it more empathetically. Is that the right word? Empathetically to, to make people realize they were giving more information to actually trust the results. When in reality, we don't need it. So at what point do are we really just going through stages of evolution or is there a big revolution to come here to go, don't worry, folks, the way you always used to do it is no longer valid or no, no longer needed. We can jump loads of steps forward and do it this, this way going forward. Is there going to be 
an evolutionary moment where we just keep adding more and more data into the mix and then we start drowning in it? Or are we going to go, actually, we've got all this and give you a score or something else for it? Well, I mean, the reality is you know, we're being scored by all sorts of things that we just don't know about, you know, whether it comes to credit, cost of credit or bank lending or, you know, the whole dating thing, of course, has got all sort of stuff going on. So I think the answer is there will be data that's being used in the background we don't see. And there's a big there's a big sort of question there about, you know, do we do we get disclosure into that? And then, yes, to your point about too much data, I mean, the, the, this comes back to my earlier point. In a commercial world, the more you know about something might mean actually you, you decide either you've got to charge more because it's got more risk and therefore you're going to lose the business because it's competitive unless everybody's using the same data source. Uh, or you find it's less risky, in which you charge less, which is fine, but then you're going to have to write more business to keep your revenue coming in from the premium income. So I think that's one side of it. You know, it's just recognizing that not all data is necessarily going to make a difference. But the other one, which I'm just going to quote back to you from one of your podcasts, when James Blakem from By Miles was talking about one of the questions they were asking was of people for their car insurance was, do they park their car in a garage every night? And it actually turned out that was a leading question. And if people said yes, or they actually even more cleverly, they tested it. If someone went no and then changed it to yes, that suggested that person was going to be fraudulent because they were kind of gaming the system to see what would happen if they lied. So sometimes you know, the questions you ask don't necessarily lead to the decisions you might think they do if you're looking at it in a sort of perfectly sort of you know, simplistic way. And I always remember that because I have to send James a picture of my car. It was James and it was Freddie from Cover. And it was a really great episode. And I had to send a picture of my car in the garage. It doesn't move. But I generally do park it there amongst <laughs> all the other stuff that we have. Like everyone else who's got a garage with the bits stuck to wall and shoved on shelves and what's not. But it does go back to trust. I mean, and we look at the recent cases around the world on BI and all that sort of good stuff. And we've been doing so well with no acronyms, but BI, that's business interruption insurance. If you didn't know, that's what companies get paid for when they can't generate revenue from a loss. Doesn't always have to be a physical damage. What Nigel is referring to, of course, in here is the disagreement about what should have been paid out for COVID-related business interruption. We're not going to go into that one now. Is there an element here around, I don't want to give you all the information or all the insight back to a point about being risk pools? And I'd rather, in some cases, being vague about it, so give me a bit of wiggle room on both sides of the fence. It's an interesting debate, isn't it? I suspect there's a certain percentage of the population, and it might only need to be 5%, that goes, I'll tell you everything about what I do because I think I'd take care of myself and I want to get respect for that. And it's a bit like the in the US, you've got USAA, the big insurance company. They started off and still predominantly offer insurance to service personnel, you know, military personnel, who, you know, by and large, to look after their assets they well their properties they uh, are quite trustworthy and so you could say well yeah that's not work for everybody but but if you're an insurer that said share your information with me and you trust i don't lose it or abuse it that's there's a different different level of trust in there now not everyone's going to do that and as your previous employers deloitte we you know, did that excellent interview because you did, did an excellent report or Mark Patterson and his team did pointed out people don't really want to share data as you said and you know, one of the things I know you're going to help us when you get to Google is fixing my Nest device. So far I've got a fixed classroom for my daughter, changed the voice for a friend of mine on Google Home and a few others. I can assure you I'm doing none of those. I'm in Google Cloud uh, and whilst I work for the firm I'm definitely not a spokesperson as you'll, as you'll probably appreciate. 
Um, I, I, I absolutely love this area. I think there's so much that we can do here and so much potential going forward. Matthew, this is brilliant. I, I, I know we can talk about this for hours and people will, will A, run out of grass or places to hoover, especially me. Talk to me about things like, or companies like Hippo and folks like that. I mean, we've just seen um, a guy called Dave Wetchester go across from uh, one of the um, media companies to an insurance company. And he's continuously posting online about how exciting it is, how much they've got from IoT devices and that sort of stuff. How good is it really? Well, certainly Hippo have positioned themselves very strongly, you know, ourselves as a CEO around looking at what people are doing with their properties and even to the extent of advising, you know, they see changes in roof conditions because they're monitoring the properties. So they've certainly been making that a big part of their offering, which I think is great because, you know, we, I talk a lot about how important distribution is for MGAs or new insurance companies. You've got to get it out in the marketplace. I don't know the full details of what they've been doing. I suspect, you know, when we start to see things coming out of Texas, uh, Hippo's got quite a large exposure in Texas because they picked up some of the Liberty Mutual book out there. That will be the reality check of what's happened in terms of, you know, how well they managed to control or manage the freeze aspects out there or the, uh, the impacts of the freeze. And there are not many shortcuts. I think one of the risks is if you, if you look at some of the new companies out there, people who and actually, and I think this is this is true across the whole insure tech space, and partly actually why we're doing this report actually, which is there's a temptation to come into some of these spaces and, and look at it and go, well, no one's done anything really good for hurricane risk. I'm going to build some data to help people understand hurricane risk based on some data I pulled off the internet. Well, actually, there's 30 years worth of modeling from hurricanes, and actually, the U.S. East Coast uh, is pretty good. So I think you know there's a sort of Behind the whole insure tech world, there are some quite well-established, good companies still innovating that uh, just because they're not new and shiny doesn't mean they're actually not doing some things that are actually really valuable. The, the one point you made there is about 30 years of data. And I actually think one of the big opportunities is to work out how we do this without 30 years of data. And I've seen over the years many products not make it because they haven't got 30 years of history. So what do we have to do to mitigate that and go, actually, we've got other insights, whether location or otherwise, that we could bring together and give it a go. And that's why I think InsureTech has been successful here. Um, I, I'll steal a phrase from uh, Justin Trudeau, who, who spoke years ago and said, things have never moved this fast, but will never again move this slow. And I always feel the same is true for the location intelligence and the data and technology. You talk about IoT in the home. I know I'm a, an Uber geek when it comes to connected gadgets and stuff like that. I don't think there's going to be any new homes built that have less technology than today that did previously. The same for commercial property, the same for ships, the same for anything, really. Um, we just see an explosion of it. So how we corner all that uh, and bring it all together for the benefit of the end user is critical. I guess before I finish, in your view, any new interesting companies that are doing things a little bit differently in this space? A couple of things said there, Nigel, just make sure we're clear on this. So when I was talking about hurricane modeling, it's actually 30 years worth of models. Actually, they work with 100 years worth of data uh, not just 30 years worth of data. And I think just quickly on your point about IoT and buildings, I completely agree, you know, equal to the flooding loss in the US, the escape of water. So, you know, half the losses from water are actually from burst pipes. Really difficult to retrofit a, uh, a valve to turn off water when you get flooding. Relatively easy to fit that if you're doing a new build. So you're absolutely right. I mean, if buildings come wired for IoT and risk prevention right from when they're being built, and often actually that's almost absorbing the cost of the build because for example the builder can test the 
the functioning of the plumbing by putting in a little device that measures is it leaking and then you just pass it over to the homeowner and they've got their device so we're going to see a lot more of that in terms of companies i mean the two that i like and it's a happy coincidence they're both actually co-founded by ex-bosses of mine but that's not the reason why i'm selecting them uh so one is archipelago which Hemant shah who's formerly of rms has founded what's really interesting about them they are actually going back to the building owners you know the large asset managers, investors in building uh, buildings around the U.S., as well as people, for example, building the warehouses for Amazon. And they're collecting data at source. Yeah, so they're actually getting it directly from the owners of the building. And the big debate about standards and how data's moved around, we're always a bit sort of skeptical about blockchain. I do think ultimately we're actually going to find that the source of the data stays with the building owner and they make it available to people. And maybe it's blockchain, maybe it's something else. But the point being, we're not having to shift spreadsheets around the world every time we want to understand you know, what a tilt-up warehouse in San Francisco looks like. It's actually there at source. So they're, they're doing that. They've started to create some relationships with the brokers. They've got CNA using it. They're worth looking at. And then the other one that the podcast is coming out is uh, SafeHub. And what they're doing is sticking sensors onto earthquake buildings. And that's started by a guy called Doug Fraser, who started EkiCat then became CoreLogic and a guy called Andy Thompson, who's ex-Ovarup. What I really like about this is that it, traditionally, to find out how well a building would need to be resistant to an earthquake, you basically have to destroy it, uh, which is not very useful. Now they've got these sensors. That if you get slight tremors, you can actually you work out what the building frequency is. And I won't get too technical on it. You can listen to the podcast for that one. But the point being, when there's an earthquake now, they've basically instrumented the building. So they can tell you, has your building got some nasty fractures in it behind the stud partition that you can't see and therefore it's about to fall down or has it just had a nasty shake but it's still going to stand and keep using it and so it is a whole and there's a whole lot of things that spin off from that in terms of data and but it's back to our risk mitigation piece and it's a you know, it's point about insurance ultimately really helps save lives and drives better behavior because these things are a thousand dollars to stick on a building uh yeah and that's the other thing about this whole insure tech thing is actually if the cost of deploying it is too high it never happens if you can make it cheap you know, for a commercial building, a thousand dollars is trivial to stick a sensor in it. Then uh, why wouldn't you do it? You know? I think you, you're touching on something there, which is quite close to my heart, which is around the actual business model that we've got. And I always remember many of the providers of early IoT devices, whether even even in black boxes and cars for telematics, used to be we can't afford to spend the fifty pounds per black box to put in the car to get the benefit because it wasn't big enough. Um, when you move to commercial buildings, obviously that's very very different. I think the business model of all of those things, in the same way I might give you a watch to monitor your health or whatever it might be, will start to change dramatically over the, over the years to come. Look, I, I'm super excited by this. I, I know you and I could talk about this for hours. I know the community could talk about this for hours. More importantly, how do people get hold of the report? Yeah, so it's coming out 1st of April. We're doing a an event around it. It's going to be free for the first month. Uh, we had a lot of downloads for the parametric insurance one, a lot of downloads for Robin Z placing report. Uh, we've got a bit of a, a bet going between Rob and I to see which ones are going to be most popular. So please do download it, many copies as you like. Uh, but we'll be sending it out through all the usual channels, LinkedIn, the newsletter, on the website. Uh, but, yeah, do get it in early because there's a lot of work going on this. It's worth quite a lot, but we're giving it away free for the first month. Um, and then it'll be members only get it. Nigel, it's been great. Thank you for asking me some tremendous questions. As you say, there's a I can see there's a whole lot more we could dig into this in a bit more detail uh, to be followed up on. Thank you for letting me do it. I'm just now worried about what I'm going to do on Sunday morning. 
<laughs> well, the good news is if you're collecting, I don't know if you are these days, but if you're collecting your uh, CII, uh, Chartered Insurance Institute, CPD accreditation, you can actually get 30 minutes of accreditation for listening to yourself. I don't think anybody else offers that. I'm going to make no comments to my own <laughs> but I hope everyone enjoys it. It's been a fantastic read, and I thoroughly enjoyed having the chance to have a conversation with you on the microphones. Brilliant. And just to give you a final closing word, anybody that wants to find you on the 11FS podcast, can you tell me how they find you? Yeah, no, no thank you. Um, so Sarah Kachansky and I uh, host it. You'll find it on all the good podcast channels, uh, Apple, Spotify, etc., You'll find me personally on Twitter or LinkedIn forever writing about this sort of stuff, usually giving out about e-scooters, a whole different conversation there about location of intelligence of these illegal things, at least in the UK, not in the US. And uh, either that, baking or talking about my first love, which of course is insurance. And your wife is your first love. (laughs) And kids. I forgot those guys. They're not going to listen to this. Got to get out of that office at some point. Okay, Nigel, best of wishes for this new role. We'll look forward to hearing more about that. And uh, yeah, we'll be tuning in for the next episode of the podcast. Thanks very much. Thank you. Well, I hope you enjoyed that as much as we did recording it. Grab that report now before we start charging you, London. And if you are feeling generous and you're enjoying the Instec podcast, then please do leave us a review or a rating or both. If you're on your iPhone, you'll just need to scroll down to the end of the episodes and add it in there. Back at Insta HQ, we are dusting down our badge printer and Robin is perusing wine lists in the hope of getting back to live events in July. For a fast track to popularity, join us in sponsoring one of our events or maybe even our summer party. For this or anything else, you can contact me, Matthew Grant, via LinkedIn or any of us on hello at instec.london. <laughs>